Our scripture for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. If you are reading from the Black Bible in front of you, it's on page 811. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Amen. You may be seated. Well, thanks for uh, worshiping with us this morning at Delta Church. It's just a pleasure to be, be here with you this morning. Um, we as a church are working through the Sermon on the Mount. We're working through Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And what we do is we find ourselves right, right smack dab in the middle of Matthew chapter 6. Uh, but where we're at in the grand scheme of Jesus' most famous sermon, his Sermon on the Mount, we've really crested the peak and we're going, we're going down the backside of the mountain, so to speak. So Jesus has been building up, what does it look like, this idea of a kingdom ethic? What does it look like for us to submit ourselves to the values of the king, to the, to the rule and the reign of the king? And he's, he's been doing this by looking at the Old Testament. He's been doing this by himself pointing us to Christ himself, the king. Um, he's been pointing out what does it look like to live like Jesus in such a way, and what does this effect look like. He's calling us to to live in such a way to where we actually show Jesus in the way we think and the way we speak and the way we talk and how that'll make us light in the world, make us salt in the world. He was talking about even how we live out our righteousness. How do we practice our Christianity when it comes to prayer, when it comes to giving, when it comes to spiritual disciplines, things such as fasting? And last week, in a really very real sense, we've, we've climbed that, that mountain and we came to the peak of the Lord's model sermon, the Lord's, or the Lord's model prayer, the Lord's prayer where he showed us what does it look like to leverage our lives in such a way where we plant Jesus Christ at the center and how Christ at the center of our lives consumes everything and how prayer plays an integral part of that. And in a way, you, could, you can say it was like the peak of the sermon. And what Jesus is going to do is he's just not going to stop there, but now what he's going to do is we sort of walk down the backside of this mountain, the backside of this this big sermon that he's doing. Jesus is going to touch on just a handful of things. We've only got four more weeks, including t- uh, this week, today, um, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to touch on this idea of what does it look like to have single-minded devotion to Christ. He's going to touch on the idea of anxiety. How do we live in this world not being anxious, but fully trusting in God himself. He's going to talk about this idea of judgment and wisdom and prayer and how that all works together. And then he's done with his sermon. He's going to turn and give one last impassioned plea about the two different ways that he's laid out before us. And then he's done with his sermon. And so when we find ourselves this morning looking at these verses, verses 19 through 24, there's a sense in which Jesus is almost acting like a doctor, acting like the great physician that he is. 
All of us have been to, to the doctor at some point in time in our lives. So if you have some sort of pain in your leg, what you do is you go to the doctor so you can get a checkup. And what does the doctor do? When he comes, you go into his office, he just doesn't pull out a scalpel and just start going to work on you. What a good doctor does is he starts to ask you questions. You walk in and say, my leg hurts. So then he asks you, well, which leg hurts? Where exactly does your leg hurt? What were you doing that caused you to notice the pain in your leg? And it's through these these questions, this good doctor is asking us, he's doing this so he can diagnose the problem, to find out a very specific thing so he, with his doctor's knowledge, can use that in a way to go, I see what you're saying, I do believe it is this, he diagnoses the problem, and then as he diagnoses the problem, he can apply a prescription that will specifically fix that problem. So in a similar way, when we turn to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, Jesus, the great physician, is acting like a doctor. He's going to ask us three specific questions that are going to come to us in the form of three different illustrations where Jesus is poking and prodding on our hearts to try to get us to see where the devotion of our heart lies. Jesus is going to ask us the question, where truly is your treasure? What is your spiritual vision truly focused on? Who really is your master? And in asking these questions, Jesus is teaching this, this this main idea that the call of Jesus Christ and his kingdom is to single-minded devotion to the king. Remember, this is King Jesus speaking to us about his rule and reign here on earth. The Sermon on the Mount are just a bunch of nice platitudes, sort of blog posts where Jesus is just saying sort of a handful of random things, a couple nice tweets here, a couple nice Facebook posts there, and then Matthew came along and said, well, Jesus said this at one time, and he said this at one time, and well, I'm just going to throw them all together and present them to you in this way. No, this is, this is King Jesus giving out a manifesto. Laying out what does it look like for us to leverage our lives as disciples of Christ who have been reconciled to God the Father through the person and work of Christ. He as the king saying, my rule and reign looks like this and this is what it looks like for you and me to come together and to live in submission to King Jesus, his rule and his reign. And so here's Jesus on the backside of this, of this peak, the backside of the Lord's Prayer. And the first thing he does is says this, you must know this, the call of myself, the call of Christ, the call of my kingdom is single-minded devotion to the king himself. And the reason why Jesus is calling us to this reality is because Jesus knows our hearts are so very easily prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God that we love. And so what Christ is doing is he's, he's putting forward these questions so that we can begin to diagnose what actually occupies the devotion of your heart. King Jesus is calling his disciples to be consumed with the priorities of the king. And he's going to drive this point home with three illustrations this morning. He's going to teach us the priority of heavenly treasures. He's going to teach us the priority of a singular vision And he's going to teach us the priority of serving God. The priority of heavenly treasure, the priority of a singular vision, and the priority of serving God. So grab your copy of Scripture there as the 
Scripture reader said, Amanda, if you don't have a copy of your own scripture, there's black Bibles around. You can find it up there um, on the page. I think it's page 8, 811 where it's at. Look in your copy of scripture. Look at verses 19, 20, and 21. We're going to see this. Jesus talking about the priority of heavenly treasure. Christ says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But do do this, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And here's the little summary point of this illustration, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So with three short illustrations, Jesus is laying out a twofold option before his disciples. Christ is going to do this. Three illustrations, he's going to do a comparison game. And in three different ways, he's going to go, see what you normally drift towards. Look how superior Christ is. He's going to compare the way of the world, which calls for your devotion, and the way of Christ and his kingdom, which also calls for your full devotion. Jesus is going to say that one is worthy of full allegiance. It is true and it is right. It is anchored on Christ. But to be devoted to the other is folly for it's false and it absolutely leads you away from Jesus Christ. So Jesus compares the two paths over against each other three different times so that we can see the wisdom of single-minded devotion to Jesus himself. And the first thing Jesus does is he, like a doctor, comes and he asks us this question. Sir, ma'am, brother, sister, beloved, where is your treasure? Where is your treasure? See, all of us are stockpiling treasure in some way. When you, when you read these verses, Jesus does not say, hey, don't lay up for yourself treasures on heaven. As a matter of fact, don't even give yourself over to the laying up of treasure. He doesn't say that. He knows full well that our hearts are created by him to long for something, to seek treasure. So Jesus says, don't actively pursue laying up for yourselves treasures here on earth, but actively pursue laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven. All of us are stockpiling treasure in some way. We either lay up treasures on earth or we lay up treasures in heaven. Earthly treasure is corruptible. It's easily stolen. Moth and rust destroy. Thieves can break in and steal. Heavenly treasure, on the other hand, is incorruptible. It is secure because neither moth nor rust destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus is laying out an obvious comparison between the two treasures. And by comparing these two things, Jesus is showing the superiority of heavenly treasure. He's showing the superiority of his kingly reign. He's showing the superiority of his kingdom over against the paltry, puny, earthly treasures that we so easily cling to. And he's doing it in the world of comparison. I'm a big Apple fan. And one of my first smartphones was the Apple 3G. It was beautiful. Shiny, smart, brilliant. I didn't have to press buttons, right? Just swipe your finger. It was good. The best thing since sliced bread was the iPhone 3G. That's what I thought at the time. And then what Apple does best is kick out newer and better models. So the 3GS came out. We didn't go for that one. I mean, it just sort of looked like my 3G. But then the iPhone 4 came out. I was like, man, this looks pretty good. I was like, surely it can't beat my 3G. 
mean, look how sharp the screen is. Look how quick it is. Look how fast it is. And it wasn't until we went and bought the iPhone 4 and I brought the two together, the 3G and the 4, that I really got a grand comparison. That 3G really isn't as good as I thought it was. The iPhone 4 was the first phone to have the retina display. And when I saw that retina display over against that obviously not retina display on the 3G, on the, the 3G that I had, I'm like, I can't believe that I thought the 3G was as good as it was. But notice that I didn't realize how not good the 3G was until I had something better than I could actually compare it to. It wasn't until a superior product came right next to the inferior product that I saw, man, there is a distinct difference here. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, listen, don't be consumed with the treasures here on earth. Don't be giving yourself over to these things that seem like they will satisfy the delights and the longings of your heart. See this, let me compare the glories and the majesty and the beauties of Christ and my kingdom. See how inferior the things of this world actually are. Jesus is playing a comparison game. Now, what we have to do is pause and ask the question, so what is Jesus saying when he says, do not lay up for yourself treasures here on earth? Like, what is he saying? And it's easier to understand what he's saying by actually saying what he's not. Jesus is not prohibiting certain things when he says, avoid laying up treasures here on earth. So when Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures here on, on earth, Jesus is not forbidding believers from having like a savings account, right? So Jesus isn't saying, hey, hey don't lay up treasures here, here on earth. Don't stock a little extra money away in the savings account. What he's saying is, don't have a retirement plan. He's not saying that. He's not saying don't have a Roth IRA. He's not saying these sorts of things. Earthly goods are given by God to be used by God's, for, for God's glory. They're not to be stockpiled for man's glory. So Jesus himself, through the Apostle Paul, says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So when Jesus comes around and says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, that command does not deal so much with just the mere idea of possessions, but it deals with our attitude toward our possessions. Jesus is doing what he's been doing all along in the Sermon on the Mount. He's going right directly toward the heart. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, money is not evil. What's evil? The love of money is the root of all evil. See, one of the major themes in the Sermon on the Mount is the way that Jesus deals with the motivations of our heart. This section of the sermon is it's just no different. Jesus knows that the heart of man hungers after treasure, but this treasure is to be sought in heaven and not here on earth. Jesus recognizes this reality when he says that little summary statement there in verse 21 in your Bibles. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That which we treasure, we will relentlessly drift toward. That thing that you cherish, you will go out of your way to make sure you get it. You will put time, you will put energy, you will put thought, you will put money. You will leverage and bend yourself. Your heart will make sure you get what you treasure, what you cherish, what you want, what you desire. So the question that then becomes is this, what are you truly devoted to? What are you truly devoted to? 
What consumes you? What do you live for? And more importantly, is there a way that we can figure out what we are truly devoted to? So if Jesus is saying this, listen, your heart is constantly bending towards something. Just don't let it be bent towards treasures on earth. Make sure it's being bent towards treasures in heaven. And so I hear Jesus saying this, and I, I, I see this as I read the words of Christ. But then the question I come to is this, what honestly is my heart devoted to? And is there a way to find out, like, am I somehow deceiving myself in this? And I think there is a way to find out. I think the, this answer to the question of how can I know what I am truly devoting, leveraging, living for, what is consuming me, what am I devoting myself to is found in this answer. The answer is this. Everything which hinders you from loving God above all things, those things which act as a barrier between you and your obedience to Jesus, this is your treasure. So if you are living a life striving for Christ, striving for Christ, clinging for Christ, but there's just that thing over here that's constantly grabbing your attention, that thing that's constantly pulling you, the thing that's constantly drifting you, that is that thing that is striving, longing, crying, clinging to you, trying to make it its treasure so that you don't cling to Christ as your treasure. That which acts as a barrier between you and your obedience to Jesus, this is your treasure. That which hinders you from loving God above all things, this is the thing you are truly devoted to. So if you honestly treasure the approval of man, your heart will take you there. If you treasure the attention of the opposite sex, your heart will find a way to make sure you get the attention of the opposite sex. If you treasure power position or pride of place if you treasure applause relationships or promotion if you treasure money house or car if you treasure division envy and strife if you treasure sex pornography or whatever else jesus says you can rest assured anything that is stopping you from a wholehearted full tilt single-minded devotion to Jesus Christ, anything that stops you from that, that is your treasure. And you can rest assured your heart will go, brother, sister, let's go get this thing. And it is for this reason Jesus alone calls us in these first three verses, pulling no punches, comes out and says, you have to evaluate what is your treasure. What are you devoting your life to? What consumes your energy, your time, and your thought? And it's for this reason that Jesus calls his kingdom citizens to set their treasure in heaven. Not as a byproduct, not as a, man, I sure hope we get there one day, but as an absolutely decided priority of their life. So what does Jesus do? He turns, like a door turns on its hinge, and he goes right to the second verse, same as the first. And he goes to verse 22 and 23, and he's going to give us the same idea, but he's going to tweak it a little bit. He's going to give us a different illustration. So we saw the priority of heavenly treasure, giving ourselves to this. Now what does Jesus do? He talks to us about the priority of a singular vision. The priority of a singular vision. Look in your copy of Scripture. Follow along with me here. Verse 22 and verse 23. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. 
So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Summary point, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So here's Jesus calling us the singular gaze of Christ's disciples is to be upon Jesus Christ himself. Not only are we to prioritize Christ's kingdom as our treasure, but we are to prioritize a singular gaze upon Jesus himself. So the second thing that Jesus does as the great physician, he's going to ask another question, sort of poke and prod on our hearts to help us diagnose what are we leveraging our lives for. And the second question is this, what is your spiritual vision focused on? What's your spiritual vision focused on? So what Jesus does to teach this point is he dips into the world of anatomy in order to paint a spiritual reality. He's going to go to the world of the eyes and the way our eyes work and the way way our eyes think. So in the physical world, the health of your eyes matter for what your eyes focus on will determine what happens to your body. So Jesus says, listen, just think about this sort of this, this world of anatomy. Think about this physical reality. The eye is the lamp of the body. And so at first glance, you're like, that's a little weird. Like, what does that mean? Like, I look at something and my eye actually emits light into my body. I'm like, what exactly is, is Jesus, Jesus saying? I think he's saying something along these lines, that everything the body does depends on the eye's ability to see. So a person with healthy eyesight gives light to the body as it works with its hands and feet. And a person with bad eyesight or blindness literally walks in darkness, right? So we could say, like, right, we're, we're, in, we're in a metaphorical world. We could say that my hands and my feet walk in light because my eye is healthy. So if I want to reach out with my hand and grab my phone, I know where my phone is at. I know where to reach my hand. I know when to grasp because my eye is healthy. My body is living in light. But the moment that I close my eyes, there's a very real sense in which I'm living in darkness. So if I wanted to bend down and tie my shoe right now, I can open up my eyes, bend my knees, and start using my fingers and their dexterity to tie, to tie my shoe. But the moment I close my eyes, like I'm literally living in darkness, and like that task basically becomes impossible. And so Jesus is saying, healthy eye, body walks in light. Bad eye, body walks in darkness. So we can agree with Jesus that if your eye is healthy, your body's full of light. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Just as this physical reality is true, so too in the spiritual world of things, the health of your spiritual eyes absolutely matter, is what Jesus is saying. See, the good eye is the one that is singularly fixed on Jesus Christ, unwavering in its gaze, constant in its fixation upon Jesus Christ. The bad eye is the one that is fixed on the world, distracted in its gaze, Fickle in its fixation, looking at everything around itself, avoiding that singular gaze upon Jesus Christ himself. See, the summons of Christ here in these two verses is for us to consume ourselves with a singular gaze upon the king. He invites us to behold the splendor of his majesty and in turn to be held by it ourselves. 
See, Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light of men. Jesus is the light of the world. And you and I are called to walk in the light as Jesus Christ himself is in the light. And the follower of Christ is only in the light so long as he looks simply to Christ and at nothing else in this world. Jesus, I mean, he's a brilliant preacher. He's a brilliant teacher because there's this essence where you go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. How are you going to be the light of the world? Not by looking at the world. You are the light of the world when you singularly fix your gaze upon Christ himself and so reflect the light of the world through you. That is how you and me are the light of the world. See, the logic is pretty simple. Jesus is saying this. Jesus is the light. And as we set our eyes upon the light of men, his light will reflect itself in our lives to a world that lives in darkness. That is the sense, spiritually speaking, in which our eye is the lamp. Of the body. If your spiritual eye is healthy and that it is singular upon Christ, then we, what we can expect is this that your whole life will be full of the light of Christ. But if your spiritual eye is bad in that it fixes upon everything else but Christ, what we can expect is that your whole life is going to be full of darkness. And Jesus says this darkness is especially shocking. If the person has deceived themselves thinking, I'm actually walking in the light. See, that's what's so scary about that last little phrase there in verse 23. Jesus is laying out a pretty simple argument. Look to Jesus. And you know that you are singularly focused on Jesus Christ, gazing upon his light. Because as you gaze upon him, the light of the world, that light will reflect itself in you and it will shine outward. You want to know if you are singularly gazed on Christ? Does your life reflect Jesus Christ? If you look around and go, my life doesn't really reflect Jesus Christ, and there's a decent chance that you're not singularly focused upon Jesus Christ himself. But Jesus says, and this is the scary thing, that last little phrase there, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus is teaching that some people think they are actually walking in the light as Christ is in the light, but they are deceived for the light in them is actually darkness. This person's darkness is greatest who thinks his darkness is actually light. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is this darkness? For this person thinks his eye is good when it is actually bad. He's misdiagnosed the problem. This person talks himself into believing that his mediocre to non-existent allegiance to Christ and his kingdom is actually deep, it's true, and it's genuine, when in fact, it is a complete sham. And Jesus says the person who finds himself in this place is walking a very dangerous trail. They are utterly deceived. They look at the darkness and go, look how light it is in here. And Jesus says the person in that place, they are in some really serious darkness and they got a serious problem. And Jesus, like a good physician, is saying, diagnose, evaluate what's actually going on. Are you singularly focused upon Christ himself? The third thing Jesus does is he switches to the priority of serving God. Heavenly treasure, make it a priority. Singular vision focused on Christ, make it a priority. Thirdly, serving God As your master, make it a priority. 
this third question that Jesus asked to help us diagnose, are we actually serving God, leveraging everything that we have toward God himself? Jesus asked this question, who really is your master? Who's your master? Who are you serving? Who are you submitting yourself to? See, you and I were created to have a heavenly master. What's implied in this This little statement, verse 24, where Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Underneath that word, serve, that idea there, is this Greek word that gives us actually our phraseology for slave. And so what Jesus is saying is, you're going to be like a slave-like person. You are going to serve somebody. You will have a master. Paul lays this argument out phenomenally in Romans chapter 6. Once you are saved, you were, before you were saved, you once were a slave to sin. You had a master. His name was Sin. And he ruled you and controlled you. When Jesus Christ saved you, you didn't stop having a master. The allegiance changed. You now have Christ, but he's a benevolent, good, sovereign, loving, merciful master. We've created to have a master. God made us for himself. Not so we can serve two masters and be divided in our devotion, but so that we can serve one master and give ourselves completely to him. And Jesus just simplifies this last illustration by getting straight to the point. That last, that last little sentence there, I mean, it's just poignant. He's like, listen, let's, let's just not cut around. Like, listen, you can't serve God money. You can't give yourself wholeheartedly to God and then go, I'm also going to equally give myself wholeheartedly like a servant gives itself to a master to God, money, wealth, material things, things of this earth. Jesus says it cannot be done. And Lord knows we try it. We try very hard to look at the sentence and go, Jesus, really? That's not true. I can serve God and money. I can wholeheartedly devote myself to you and then wholeheartedly give myself to the world. And Jesus says, just don't do it. Don't give yourself over to this way of thinking. Any attempt to give yourself to two masters that demand wholehearted allegiance, it is absolutely doomed to fail. You're either going to hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Jesus is not saying that you cannot have two employers, right? So like this isn't you like, like if you have two part-time jobs, don't be sweaty right now. Like, Jesus isn't saying, like, oh, no, like, man, I've got two masters. Man, I've got boss A and boss B. What am I going to do? Jesus isn't talking about, like, two part-time jobs. But what he is saying is that our hearts have room only for one all-embracing devotion, and we can only cling to one Lord. You're either going to call money Lord, or you're going to call the sovereign God Lord. Devote yourself to God himself. And every competitor that comes along... Every competitor to that devotion, that singular devotion to the Lord, must be put in its place, subordinated to God. See, notice what Jesus said. It's not bad. Money's not bad. Having a job's not bad. Having a hobby's not bad. Having a nice pair of jeans isn't bad. Having a house isn't bad. What's bad is when those things reach out and go, I don't want God to be God anymore. Me, your house, I want to be God. And it grabs God, rips him off the throne, and your house, pursuit of money, The love of money, the love of goods, the love of things, the love of stuff, the love of possession say, I deserve to be enthroned upon the throne of your heart. That's what Jesus is driving at here. And what he's saying is that every competitor to that singular devotion to God must be put in its place subordinated to God. 
No one can serve two masters. So Christ calls us through these three illustrations to choose this day whom we're going to serve. Who are you going to serve? Are you going to bow down to the Lord of possessions? Or are you going to bow down to the Lord God of all creation? So how do you respond to this? I mean, on the surface, it just sort of looks like, okay, that's great. Three little illustrations. Like, what's, what's Jesus driving at here? And I, I think a response could look like this. A call to action could look like this. Like, we read these words. We see what they say. They're pretty simple to understand. But I can imagine for most of us that these truths fall into the category of easier said than done. Right? On paper, I open up my Bible, I read these words, and when I, when I look at them, I'm like, that's, that's great, in theory. But come on, Jesus. God and money, I can't do both. Come on, Jesus. Singular-minded vision upon you. That's not reality. Don't lay up treasures here on earth. Lay up treasures in heaven. Come on, Christ. You know better. Right? Single-minded devotion to Christ, it looks great on paper, but in practice, it feels impossible to live out. So we hear someone like me stand up and get really excited, my arms fly around, and we go, man, that sounds great, but that guy is a fool because he has no idea what I'm going to have to go through tomorrow. We keenly feel the rub of prioritizing Christ and his kingdom above all things and subordinating all else to Christ's kingdom rule. I mean, that's a tension. I hope you're feeling that tension right now. I've lived in this tension all week long, right? Have pity upon me. I'm, in, I'm sitting here thinking, going, man, I feel the tension. Looks good on paper, but Jesus, does this work itself out in reality? So the question I just kept asking myself over and over, and the question I now ask you is, why is that? Why do we read this and go, Jesus sounds great in theory, but in practice, you're a fool. Can't be done. Why do we feel that tension? Why does the seeming impossibility of single-minded devotion to Christ, why does that feel so weighty? Why does that feel so dense? I mean, there's a lot of ways to answer this question, but I believe at least one answer is found in this. We simply have a lack of contentment in Christ. We just have a lack of contentment in Christ. The thing that often stops us from single-minded devotion to Christ is that we just don't trust that we can find satisfaction in Christ alone. We just don't trust it. This is Jesus saying, debunk everything else in your life wholeheartedly, full tilt, with no holds barred, come after me. And what we do is we hedge our bets, we draw the line and go, I hear what you're saying, but I just don't really fully believe that you can fully satisfy my soul. I'm not going to be content in you. We struggle to believe that if we go after Jesus, prioritizing him above all things, that we will somehow find ourselves wanting. We will gladly give some things to Jesus, delighting in Jesus, but we just don't really believe that he alone can fully satisfy our souls. We simply don't believe that Christ can carry his end of the bargain. So what we do is we hedge our bets and we fill up what we perceive to be lacking with all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. I mean, just, just think about this thing. Like, 
as I was thinking about this sermon this week, there was just these things popping up on my radar where it's like, man, this is a reality in my life. I see where there's certain areas of my life where like I'm just clinging on to this thing with a death grip. And I just don't really think about it. But then these words from Jesus come along. I'm like, why, why am I so unwilling to loose my grip on this thing of the world and cling to Christ? Like, why? Why am I so willing to just grab on and not let go? And I think in the heart of hearts in the back of my mind is this. is because like if I let go of this thing, which I know brings some sort of satisfaction to my soul, and if I trust Christ with it, that somehow like I'm going to just not get that full satisfaction. I'm going to found to be wanting. I'm going to found to be in that place. Where I'm like, man, I wish I just would have just kept hold of it and not let go of it and tried to cling to Jesus. I mean, why is it that we are so willing, why is it that we so willingly trust that puny and perishable treasure is going to satisfy? Why do we trust those things? Why do we love our TV time more than we love our time in the scriptures? Why do we love man's approval more than we love pointing others to Christ? Why do we love spending money on the newest gadget more than we love being generous with our money towards missions? See, I see in my own life where I do this. It's like this. It's like I have a death grip on a $1 bill. My wrench uncle comes in and goes, Brother, I've got a million dollars I'm about ready to hand to you. And what you don't know is that after that million dollars runs out, I've got another million dollars. And after that a million dollars runs out, I've got another million for you. All you got to do is let go of your $1 bill and cling to me and the gift that I have that is so infinitely and boundlessly superior to that $1 bill. And it's like me going, I hear what you're saying, bro, but I've got my dollar. And we death grip that dollar. We fist it, we pack it in there. And he's like, man, let go of the dollar. I have infinite treasure for you. Let go of the dollar. And we do that to Jesus all the time. Jesus is the most full and forever treasure that we'll ever have. And Christ is saying, loose your grip on the paltry, puny treasures of the world and lay hold of me. I'm like the rich uncle. Although that treasure of the million dollars looks like dust compared to the treasures that we have in Christ. And Christ is calling us to the full and forever treasure that we have in him. And three times over, Jesus is saying, let loose your grip, cling to me. Let loose your grip, cling to me. Let loose your grip, cling to me. What it boils down to is this. It's just a lack of contentment in Christ. We have bought into the lie that Christ can do many things. He's sweet, says awesome stuff, preaches like the preacher kind of preacher that I want, but he simply cannot bring that deep down, soul-quenching contentment that I so long desire. We buy into that lie, and our lives prove it by the things that we cling to other than Christ. So we journey through life seeking to find contentment in everything else, but never truly finding the contentment that we so long for, but because we try to find that contentment in the things that were never created to actually give that full, satisfying commitment. That's just the deception of sin. So the last question we have to ask is, what on earth is the antidote for discontentment? 
What does the Bible say? This is the way that you fight discontentment. And the answer is rather quite anticlimactic. Like, right, this is the time where the ticker tape comes out, and then our mind is like, but don't, you know, ooh, John's got some big magic formula that's just going to destroy discontentment. We're going to cling to Christ. We're all going to go running out of the building. Yeah, right. But, but it's not it. Do you know what the answer is? Do you know what the antidote for discontentment is? It's this. Be content in God. Right? I was like, man, bro, I already knew that. I know. But you know what? That's what the scriptures say. We want some ticker tape, you know, ray of sunshine from the heavens. We want the hallelujah chorus to land, you know, as I just, this magical verse comes, like the one you have just magically have never seen before, which is the complete answer to, man, this is the antidote to discontentment. But you know what the antidote to discontentment is? It's what you already know. Be content in God. And that's exactly where the scriptures go. One of the best places I know, and we're just going to end on this. I'm just going to read this to you. But the apostle Paul, he got this. He understands what being content in God looks like. And as he's writing to his young, young apprentice, Timothy, in his first letter, chapter 6, starting in verse 6, in the following verses, Paul writes this to Timothy. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world And we cannot take anything out of the world. So don't cling to the world. If we have food and clothing, with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich, so this now we're talking about the motivations of the heart. So now someone is desire, my desire is not Jesus, my desire is to be rich. Paul says those who desire to be rich, who leverage themselves for the things of the world, single-minded devotion to treasure, wealth, things of the earth, what do they do? They fall into temptation. They fall into a snare. They fall into many senseless and harmful other desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So Paul is saying this, the moment that we take our singular gaze off Jesus Christ and give ourselves over to another singular desire that's vying for our attention, pulling us from our attention on Christ, what happens is that's not just like a one-time event because the moment you lose sight of Christ and give your full devotion to something that is not Christ, all these other things come and the next thing you know you're just swamped and consumed with the things of the world. These people who desire to be rich, they fell into temptation, into a snare, into many other senseless and harmful other desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Here's the verse we said earlier, for the love of money, it's the root of all kinds of evil. Again, he's driving at the heart. It's not money is evil, but the love of money is evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That sounds like Jesus saying this, if the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Some people have given themselves over to the pursuit of earthly treasures and what has happened. They have... They have so obviously wandered from the faith. They've pierced themselves. It wasn't someone else's doing. They did it to themselves, self-afflicted wounds, because they took their gaze off Jesus and gave it to something else. But Paul encourages Timothy, but as for you, O man, flee these things. Flee them. Don't play with them. Don't try to serve two masters. Flee, run, have nothing to do with them. 
Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. But do do this, set your hope on God, for it is God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We are created to pursue, to pursue, to hope, to hope in things. And Paul says this, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but actually set your hope on God because we have riches in Him. He's the one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good. They are to strive to be rich, but they are to be rich in good works. They are to be generous with their possessions, ready to share. And what are they doing when they do all these things? They're storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Be content In Christ and his kingdom, he is the one who can fully satisfy your souls. So here's at least two ways that I think we can respond this morning. First is this. My hope is that just through this little time, that the Holy Spirit has actually been doing a work in you. And that what he's done is he's just reached into your world and he's just grabbed that one little thing that holds you back from Christ. That one little thing that you are treasuring above Christ. And what he's doing is like a red flag, a neon signs, and arrows. What he's saying is, you, sir, you, ma'am, you need to deal with this. Because this one singular thing you are devoting yourself to. And as you devote yourself to this, you are robbing that singular minded devotion to Jesus Christ. So we're going to deal with this thing so this thing can die so that we can then in turn give ourselves singularly to Jesus Christ. My hope is that God is showing you what is keeping you from Christ. The beauty is this. Jesus is calling you to loosen your grip on this thing and to grip, cling, lay hold of Jesus Christ. And God, our Father, through Jesus Christ, grants you that grace. That's the good news of the gospel. Like, this isn't a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps message. Hey, Davis, get with it. Kill this thing and go after Jesus. What it is, Jesus, you're showing me that this thing needs to die because this thing is robbing devotion from you. You, Jesus, Holy Spirit, help me to lay waste to this thing so that I can in turn run to you. The answer is found in the grace of Christ. The answer is found in the Christ who's revealing this thing and then you turn and go, you, please help me do this so I can be with you, cling to you, walk with you, run after you, reside with you, commune with you. That's the answer for for those of us who are believers. But for those of us who are believers, it's nearly the same thing. Because this is what's true of all of humanity. If you are not a Christian here this morning, this reality is true of you. You have things that are clinging on to you, that are drawing you and stopping you from seeing Jesus Christ. So what is your hope this morning? It is this crying out to the Savior going, I see all of these things in my world that are clouding a vision of you. Christ, help me. Save me. Show me. And it's the same answer above. Christ is calling you to cling to him. 
run to him, lay hold of the good news message of Jesus Christ that he, through his person, through his work, died on that cross so that him, by his power, can lay waste, loosening that grip so that you could respond in repentance and faith, running to him. Believer or unbeliever, the answer is still the same. It's the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ and the grace found in him. So my hope is that as we respond here in a couple moments, Pastor Tom's going to come up. We're going to take communion. My prayer is this, that as you respond in these ways, that Jesus would just do a great work in us. Mobilizing a people, an army, a church, a body of believers, a local outpost of the kingdom in such a way to where we go out of these doors, not self-reliant, but go out of these doors Christ-reliant as Jesus gives us the grace to walk in such a way where we leave going, I am going to walk with a singular-minded devotion to Christ, setting myself, my eyes upon the light of man. And as I set my sights upon the light of man, I'm going to seek by his grace to reflect and be a light to the world that so people could potentially see my good deeds and so glorify our Father who is in heaven. Jesus, we are desperate for you. Like the hymn says, we are prone to wander. We are prone to leave the God we love. We are prone to lay hold of treasures here on earth. We are prone to despise striving for treasures in heaven. We are prone to set our gaze upon the things of the world. We are prone to not cling tightly to the Christ. God, I pray that you would do a work in us so that we would see Jesus as the far superior fool and forever treasure that he is. And as we hold the fool and forever treasure of Christ next to the, quote, treasures of the world, there will be such an obvious disconnect about how puny and paltry the things of the world are that we would be wooed by the beauty and the majesty of the fool and forever treasures we have in Christ. God, you alone delight to do this work. And so I ask that you do this in the lives of my brothers and sisters. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.